Welcome, everybody, to the eighth ever edition of the West Coast Preps Podcast. I am Chris Jackson, joined here by Gregory Marlin-Tune, and we have a special guest here today from Pinewood. I don't think my introduction for him could do him justice with all the wins and state championships he's got. So, Coach, you have the floor. Introduce yourself to the crowd. Hi, I'm Doc Scheffler. I've coached Pinewood basketball girls for 25 years. And there's, there's a lot of wins in that, too, I think people should know about. So how many wins and how many championships do you have in your career and at Pinewood? Oh, uh, come on, Chris. Uh, <laughs> I don't keep track of that stuff. Uh, <laughs> not really that important, uh, 656. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> I like it. Uh, uh, it's just a joke. And, and the thing is, I never kept track of that. And I have to go each year when somebody asks me that question and go like, oh, yeah, let me see what that is. Oh, okay. So we were 25 and 5. I was 631 and 131, so that makes it 656 and 6, uh, 136. So, hmm. not I, a that's a good record. Yeah, well, thanks. Uh, <laughs> I coach great girls and, and uh, that buy in, so that's that's part of the deal. Indeed, you need good athletes in order to uh, to accomplish something like that too. So, yeah, it all depends on your definition of what a great athlete is. You know, it's like. You know, athletes that can change direction, can shoot, can drive, can see, that those are athletic qualities. Um, those that can take coaching, uh, those that want to be coached, those are great athletic qualities. When people think of athletes, they just think of people that run fast, that jump high, that uh, are tall, uh, have long arms and things like that. Although those are important ingredients in uh, defining a great basketball player, there's so many other athletic qualities that uh, – I mean, I can plug in Steve Nash. I can plug in uh, Luka Doncic into the mix as well. The guys that don't fit the athletic mold um, and still can get it done on the basketball court. So exactly. it's all about hard work. Luka. Did you see that Luka shot yesterday? In that it was incredible. Oh incredible. You know, it's, it's another example of uh, um, a guy. He kind of reminds me of Chris Mullen. You just go like, why can't guys guard this guy? You know, it's why can't they keep him in front? And he's so deceptive, changes speeds. He has great driving angles. He gets into spots and his decision is great. He's, he's crafty, makes the right move at the right time. Um, granted, there's no, you know, I enjoy watching Chris Paul play a lot because he's herky jerky and changes his speed and changes his direction. I mean, I really admire those guys that don't get credit for being as let athletic as athletic as they are, but they, people think of athletic as somebody like Westbrook who just flies up the court, but the people that change their speed and change their direction and, and do all those sorts of things are just as athletic. And um, I think they do stats on a, a, a thing called deceleration or something like that. Um, I don't have those things, but uh, um, there's a lot to be said. I mean, one of the things that we talk about with our, our team is that skill wins cohesion wins and effort wins and it, it wins at all levels it wins at all levels of of, of play uh, regardless whether it be high school college or the pros you get five people playing together it is a team sport that play the system well that have uh, a shared thought process of how to play the game defensively and offensively um, you're going to put yourself in position to be successful when you play indeed and so going off that, take us through your Pinewood practice. What is it like and what's your schedule like during a typical season? 
Well, we, we're limited to two hours of practice, and I think that's the right amount of time based on, you know, energy level and focus level. Um, and today's, you know, today's kids, uh, when I first started coaching years ago, I coached boys. I mean, we'd be in the gym for three hours. And being young that I was, I thought that was great. The more time you spend in the gym, the better. But I've learned to be a little bit more efficient in what we work on. Um, just giving you what a typical practice might look like is that for the first 15 minutes, they get there 15 minutes early. Um, they're required to be there 15 minutes before the start time. They do their uh, socializing while they're working on their band work and doing their ACL prevention. And then when the clock hits, it's time to start practice. Then they go over and tune their shot against the wall, work their release. And then they do their full court warm up for about three or four minutes. And then we start out with drills and we start out with drills. So everything we do is designed to make them better, um, to shoot a lot, uh, to drive a lot, to finish a lot, to make sure that we're practicing the shots that they're going to take in a game. There's no shot that we take in a game that we haven't repped out over and over again. Um, we make sure that every drill is run at full speed and all at the pace if we want to run it. Um, we don't spend a lot of time. I mean, sometimes we'll just do things for like two or three minutes. I'll put them in partners. I'll put them in groups of three. We work on our finishes, uh, to get started. Um, and the progression that we follow is usually, you know, tune their shot up and then we'll go on to some shooting drills where there's competitions. We'll do group, we'll do individual, we'll do, uh, um, team shooting drills as well. Um, and then we'll start playing. Then we'll start working on our moves um, in a full court, in a half court. And then we'll play ones. We'll play two on two full. We'll play three on three. And hopefully we'll get into four on four. So in that time frame, um, at the end of two hours, uh, and then we'll get our team stuff and individual and team defense, um, run our break uh, from a five on O standpoint, um, go from our primary and, and flow into our secondary stuff. And then run our sets, and then just play. So after two hours, I want them to take at least 150 to 200 shots, make 150 to 200 moves, and uh, make as many decisions as they can. Because I think that the main thing that uh, we try and be able to do is develop decision makers on the floor um, to be able to see, decide, and execute. Um, vision, decision, execution. That's, that's really the definition of what somebody that has IQ. I mean, that's a part of it. IQ means sensing time and place during a game. But what I see the great, the great players that can see the game and make decisions that are right. And we have a system of play that we play that's pretty unique because the ball never is stationary. Uh, we never hold on to the ball. We shoot it, we drive it, or we pass it. Uh, we want to put the defense in, a, in an unorganized situation where they're flying at us. And we do that with our transition and we do this with our secondary stuff and then our set plays as well. So we try and get them in a situation where they're, they're running at us and knowing that we develop shooters um, to the highest level, we always want to put five shooters on the floor. It makes it extremely difficult and a lot of pressure on the defense to, they have to take, you know, they have to take something away. And if they, if we're working our game, right, uh, they'll, they'll take one of the things away. They'll define, make concessions, what they want to do. And uh, we're going to get our shots at the rim or we're going to hit our threes.
So that's pretty much how a practice looks like. It's, it's, it's hard, you know. Um, I think one of the things is uh, my, my philosophy of a successful practice is after two hours, they're sweaty, they're tired, and they still have a smile on their face because they know that they, they had fun and they worked hard. So no degree of uh, drills and fundamentals that don't accomplish anything. So we don't do a lot of three-man weave and defensive slides and drills that uh, um, uh, take a lot of charges, drills that involve a lot of that. We, we like to shoot, we like to drive, we like to play. And uh, the plays that we have are designed to um, get the girls to be able to make decisions. The girls are the ones that make the plays. Um, so that's pretty much how we handle a practice. I hope that gives you a snapshot view of that. And then speaking of the three-point shooting, kind of a two-part question. Every single season at Pinewood, you make at least 153s. Why is your team always so successful from long range? And going off that, how much do you see your offensive concepts at all levels of basketball, whether you're watching a college basketball game or you're watching the NBA or maybe you're watching like the Rockets or the Warriors or teams like that? Yeah. Um, we, we shoot about 33s a game. And um, the type of threes is pretty important. Um, the highest percentage efficient shot is a catch and shoot three that somebody gets created for them, either um, off a driving kick or post relocate or off a set off a flare or off a lazy defender or against the zone or something like that. And that's the easiest shot because you don't have to do anything but catch and shoot it. So the reason that my girls are great shooters is that we spend a lot of time in terms of mechanics, in terms of shooting it the correct way. Um, everybody has the same mechanics. They might shoot it a little bit different style, like a golf swing. Every professional golfer has, you know, their own imprint of how they swing and hit the club, but they have the basic rhythm. You know, they have the basic, you know, way of hitting a ball that puts them in a position to keep the ball where they want to go. Well, shooting is the same thing. You have to keep the ball straight. And you have to put your body in a position to be able to do it. Everybody has their own style, but we want every girl on our team to have a quick catch and shoot release of about 0.5 or 0.6. So that means they have a mindset of a shooter. They're planning to shoot and reacting to drive. Um, this quick release puts a lot of pressure on the defensive players that if they give them a speck of daylight, they know it's a really good shot. And it's their job to be able to take that away. So we practice that a lot. We practice the situations how we get those catch and shoot threes, drive and kick, drive and make an opposite pass, um, swing the ball against the zone, the different types of shots that you'll get off a handoff, feeding the post, re relocate, offensive rebound kickouts. All those are quality, high efficient shots. You're gonna hit those more percentage of a time than you would, well, they call it a step back, it's really a hop back, than you would a hop back three, than you would coming off a down screen, than you would dribbling up and hitting a, a, uh, a three in transition. Those are a little bit more difficult shots that are not gonna go in the same percentage of the time. Although we practice them because we want all our girls equipped with every single shot in their bag, like a golfer has every shot in their bag. And it's pretty important that um, I, I owe it to them that there won't be a shot they won't be able to hit a high percentage of. But the ones who we want are those catch and shoot threes. Um, I lost my train of thought. What was the second part of that question? then how much do you see your offensive concepts collegially and in the pros, especially with teams like, let's say, the Warriors, Houston, and all these different teams across the league? 
I can uh, go back to, I was affected by how the Providence college team played in 1987. Uh, Billy Donovan was on that team coached by Rick Pitino. And they're the first college team to, to utilize the three point line. It had been in effect for one or two years, uh, maybe three years, but nobody's really used it. Nobody how to use it. Well, he had all perimeter players that could shoot the heck out of the ball. And they went to the final four. And I was in my 10th year of coaching, I think, coaching boys. And that's how my team's going to play. Um, because I could teach shooting well. I had good shooters. So we, were the, we started to adopt that style. I adopted it when I started coaching the girls at Pinewood. And that's how we play. And as the years have gone on, we've refined it and gotten better at it from the standpoint of technique off the catch, uh, technique driving off that catch. And now when you watch, like I was just watching the uh, Rockets and uh, Thunder, and the Rockets started the, first, half, the first, first part of the second half. They hit their first eight threes, and they're eight out of eight in the third quarter. And then they went on to, they go through a dry spell and they're three at 20 and there's Bob Fitzgerald whining about it. See, you know, it's like, dude, they made their first eight, they're three out of 20, you know, and now they're 11 out of 28. That's almost 40%. You know, you're going to deal with that. You're going to deal with the ups and downs of that, you know, and, but as long as you're consistent, I think, when I stopped watching the game, I think they were like 21 for 52. Okay, so, you know, that's 63 points in 52 shots. That's, you know, that's like 1.2 points per possession on that particular shot. And we're not talking about offensive rebounds off of that either, although nobody goes to the offensive uh, position there to get an offensive board on that, which is a problem of mine with the NBA game is everybody just starts jogging back on defense instead of, you know, that long miss uh, is going to be a long rebound. And if you have people tracking that ball and tracking, attacking, and bursting that ball, you can get a lot of shots. So I do see a lot of teams mimicking that style. And I can be an arrogant jerk and say they're copying us and things like that. But this is the way they play winning basketball. I mean, this is how you do it. And even in the early game, at halftime, I think the Bucks and uh, – the magic combined for 23s between them at halftime. Um, so it's the way, you know, basketball is played. And like I said, we've been playing that way for a long time. And people were kind of looking at us like we were a circus act or something like that. Oh, they shoot a lot of threes. Yeah, they shoot a lot of threes. And now it here's 2020. And it's like, uh, you see everybody's playing that way? And you see people that were coaches that played against this, you know, kind of, kind of looking at us like, what are they doing that for? And now they're, they're coaching the same style, you know? So we're innovators here at Pinewood School, you know? So uh, no, it's all about how you play, you know? And uh, we've got this system down to the point where we, you know, our goal when we get players in is to get them locked into the ball never sticks. The ball's always moving. You're gonna shoot it, you're gonna drive it, or you're gonna move it. And as a result of that, eventually you're going to get somebody in a catch and shoot. And if they take away that catch and shoot, then they're driving and they put them in a, into a situation where those dominoes are going to fall or you put them in the Cuisinart, however you want to put it. You got the defense flying at you. And then you know you're going to get a good shot either at the rim 
or you're going to get a wide open catch and shoot three. So we go to an extensive, you know, uh, practice time to develop that particular style. Greg, you got any takeaways on the Bob Fitzgerald impression? I think that was honestly the best one I've ever heard. That I can yeah, I mean, everything Fitz says now and you do it. You know, you know, he does such a better job. He was, he was, uh, doing the TNT game just now and you just don't get the homerism you know you don't get that you know that extreme homerism you know uh, it, you know it's almost like if, if if some guy you know did the the most menial thing out there did you see that screen you know and it's like it's just a screen Bob you know <laughs> you know it's you know did you see how he pulled his tooth there? You know, <laughs> announcing a dental, you know. <laughs> my God, he pulled that tooth well. You know, man, can he floss. So My, my favorite one is the when he, someone's like four for five from three or something like that, and he's a career 30% shooter. He goes, oh, my God, he never does this ever. Yeah, and for He's sure. going on and on and on about <laughs> it. It's like, Bob, he's an NBA player. Yeah, yeah. and the Warriors, the Warriors aren't shooting well. You know, they're not going to give credit to the defense. But when the other team's not shooting well, the Warriors' defense is unbelievable tonight. They're holding them to 8 of 33 from 3. You know, they're getting wide open looks. They're just missing, you know. So <laughs> there's a lot of subtle homerism. Oh, yeah. That, um, yeah. And the thing that bothers me is that most people, when they watch, they're, they're so gullible. They go, like, yeah, it must be the Warriors. They must be great. They're like, get me an honest guy that, you know, can announce – for somebody that's intelligent watching the game, you know, because so many times, especially, especially kids will listen to these announcers and just take it as the gospel, you know, like, and they're not really, they're not really, it's not really the truth, you know, and they'll, they'll say things that people buy into. And uh, I mean, I swear to God, if LeBron James, uh, you know, they won't, I mean, Van Gundy will point out LeBron's inadequacies on, and lack of effort on defense, but when he blocks a shot, did you see that defensive transition defense by LeBron? It's like, well, the possession before he just stood there, he never even crossed half court, you know? Um, one, of the, one of the jokes with LeBron, <laughs> one of the jokes, this is going to get entertainment. One of the jokes with LeBron that was told to me by uh, Rick Buecher, um, said he, he says he said yeah, probably Rick's gonna get in trouble. Saying anybody see this? Because <laughs> LeBron's been on load management for five years on defense. You know he just it's just not there. It just doesn't do anything. But he's the he's the best basketball player in the world. Really? Okay. I mean, yeah. Did you see that? Did you see that possession the other day where it was three on three on one end of the court? And nobody ran back in that Blazers Lakers game. That was. That was about load management at its finest right there. I'm Nobody ran back. Van Gundy but was you know what? For 10 seconds. I said this to somebody. Maybe you guys would get my analogy. Barry Bonds in the last five years of his career, running out a ground ball and LeBron getting back on defense. You know, it's like, yes, it's the same thing. It's, same it's thing. just, I don't want to get hurt. You know, the more <laughs> I sprint, I can pull a hammy. He's got groin problems. I'm more valuable to my team if I'm healthy than I am if I really hustle and expend a lot of energy. And that's why Barry didn't ground ball the short. Yeah, I'm just going to walk down. You know, why is that? I can pull the hand. I'm, I'm not going to get that fly ball. They pay me to hit home runs. So um, that's right. it's annoying. It's annoying, but it's like it's pretty pragmatic to say, to say the yeah. least. Yeah. 
Well, I think I think we need more Jim Barnett's on some of these broadcasts. I think he I think he was the perfect complement to Fitz there for all those years. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I I just wonder if if he would just give him this look like, what you know, <laughs> you know what are you talking about? Uh, but Jim has a has a great sense of basketball, and he's he's oh yeah very good analyst. Yeah, and then going back to you know everyone shooting three pointers now. Remember when Charles Barkley when the Warriors first started with Steve Kerr and their championship run it's like shooters can't win championships well now now look at every last five championship teams everyone shoots threes what if the Rockets prided themselves on analytics and beating the Warriors with that yeah I mean the analytics part of it you can go go to extreme details with that but there is a purpose you know there is a purpose there is a purpose to that and although these analytic guys probably never played the game um you don't have to play the game you know, to just look at numbers and to figure things out because they have it, they have it down to where every little spot is that you're going to shoot 38% from there. You're going to shoot 42 from there, 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 there. And every guy has, you know, a hot zone. Every guy has this and they'll go over different shots too, catch and shoot off a dribble, all those situations there. I mean, I, I had a discussion with one of my my players about mid-range shots. She's trying to talk me into letting her shoot mid-range. We don't shoot any mid-range shots. Yeah, that's that's the arc from if I were to draw an arc. That's a crappy arc. That's 12 feet right there. All right. From that arc to there, we don't take any shots. So we block that out. And the reason is, is most of the time they're inefficient, highly contested shots. They're not going to go in a high percentage of the time. And she was trying to talk me into letting her shoot mid-range shots. And I said, well, okay, let's look at Hannah Jump. You know, in drills and practice, she's 80% on threes. She turned out to be a 40% game shooter. So that's a two-to-one ratio of success, okay? And it doesn't have to be two-to-one. It can be less than that. I prefer it to be less than that in terms of what you shoot in drills compared to what you shoot in games. But Una, what would you have to, <laughs> that's her name, what would you have to shoot in practice to hit 50% of your twos in a game? And she kind of, 100%? I was like, right, right. And when you shoot those two-point shots, most of the time when you shoot them in practice, they're uncontested. You, have, you don't have a game condition involved with that. You don't have a defensive player. You're not cardiovascularly challenged. So that's part of the reason why we don't shoot those shots at all. And uh, in our situation, it's, 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 it's more efficient oriented. It's not that I don't want them to develop that shot for future situations. It's just, I feel that we can get any shot we want within the context of our offense that puts us in a position to score efficiently um, when we're on offense. Now, what do you think about when KD takes all his mid range and his fadeaway mid ranges? Do you Great like point. that offense? Great point. He and Kawhi um, last, I mean, the year before last, and it's funny, it was that particular player was sent to me by this player. Because they, <laughs> well, KD has a 1.1 points per push, points per shot with those shots, right? Kawhi's got like 1.15. Great. But you know what? I, I, don't, I don't see you looking like Kevin Durant there, you know? Yeah. That's, that's a... That's something where his length can get him that shot. 
to where he can shoot pretty much over anybody because he's 6'11 or whatever, and he's got long arms, and his skills are so high level. I mean, it's deception, he's skilled, and he can get to that spot that he wants to shoot that high percentage. But if you, if you computed every player in the NBA and totaled it up in terms of their points per possession, I mean, I, I had a um, I had a shot chart of clay about three years ago in the first round of playoffs. And, and I don't mean to take time doing this, but he was 20 of 44 from three. So that's 60 points and 44 shots. That's roughly, you know, 1.3 points per shot. And then on twos from 12 to 23 feet, he was six of 22. So that's 12 points and 22 shots. So that's like 0.56 points per shot. And then his shots at the rim is 12 of 16. So that's 24 shots, 24, major, 24, point, or 24 points and 16 shots. And that's like 1.3 as well. So you just look at that and go like, well, uh, there's an example of why you know, we have a high level NBA player only scoring 0.57 points per shot. And that's why. So it's not to say you don't practice it and make it a weapon or make it something you can hit, but it's, I mean, all the data is there, you know, all the data is there. So you don't want to settle for those shots. And especially, you know, with, with female players can't create the separation space as easily as males with athleticism difference um, in terms of jump, in terms of length. Uh, and they don't have the balance. I'm getting into detail here, but they don't have, most don't have the balance and agility to stop on a dime and rise up from that because higher center of gravity, their head is slightly forward more when they drive. And they, the basic difference between males and females basketball wise is strength and length. And uh, we try and, you know, shrink that gap by really, really uh, working on our strength and our functional movement with our girls. So that's that on efficiency right there, efficiency efficiency that's why we win we we win because of the way we play and uh that it I, I want the girls proud of the way we play i want them when they when they say that they play for pinewood that they have a little bit of you know that to it to where they're really proud of our style of play and people when they watch us play enjoy us when they watch us play the, the ball moves it's shared the shot that we take is a shot that is a good shot for all the teams. Uh, we don't have any people that are glory hogs or ball hogs. Uh, one of the fears of that I have to overcome with girls is they don't never want to be perceived as a ball hog. You know, I, I don't want to be a ball hog. So they'll miss their first two shots and they won't shoot. And it's like, what are you doing? It's like, well, I missed my first two shots. It's like, well, next two are going in, you know, <laughs> they're, they're going to go in. Um, but there's a fear of missing, fear of failure, fear of letting their teammates down, fear of that. So that's something we have to really work on to dispel that the next shot is always in and uh, you are the best shooter in America. Your shot looks great. It's going in. Um, so it's really important to affect the way they believe in themselves. And I think uh, all of our coaches uh, really do a marvelous job of that. And then going off that too, no ball hogs, none of those glory hogs. You look at it, you don't have, you've got a lot of players that go to play collegially, but none of them are taking, what is that? 20, 25 shots a night, and they're not trying to get, what is it, 20, 25 points a night either. You've got great balance there. No girls doing too much. How have you kind of just established such this culture of selflessness and just team-oriented? 
it's, you know, it's every day. I mean, when we meet, start the season, one of our, uh, one of our tenants is selfless or selfish. You know, who do you want to be? Do you want to be, people are happy when they see you walk in the room or are they happy when you leave the room? You know, it's all who you want to be as a human being. And you want to be involved with somebody that has a selfless attitude. Um, we want somebody to be hardworking. You know, we want somebody to um, be a good learner. They want to be a sponge instead of a rock. So those are the tenets that we really believe in as a team. And every single day, um, it's about creating that situation where um, the shot we get is great. It's, it's a great shot, regardless of who it is. Now, granted, we'd want the best shooters shooting more, um, but there are situations where, you know, for instance, when we had Hannah, you know, it's, it's said that Hannah was probably worth 30 points a game for our team, regardless of whether she's shoot, shooting the ball or somebody else is, because they have to, they have to identify her as a shooter, and then we're playing four on four. Then the help has to come, or come from somewhere else. And then we make them pay in another particular way. Either we're getting finishes at the rim or our other players are shooting well in that situation there. So, um, and believe me, when teams didn't scout us or we played teams that uh, just played it straight up, I mean, she had, uh, I think, 11 out of 13 threes in one of our games in Hawaii in the championship game in the Iwilani Classic. They, they didn't know how good she was. They, and they don't quick release. You have to pay attention to the shooters. So. One of the things is um, it's proven in our practices that when we do our shooting drills that everybody has to bring their level up and show the team that they can hit shots, um, good shots, not rushed, not highly contested. They're wide open shots. And uh, that's part of that. And any shot that we get from three from anybody on our team is a good shot um, because it's, it's my job as a coach to make them great shooters. It's my job to create an environment where they're great shooters. It's on me. And that's, that, that's, that's a responsibility I love because uh, um, no girl. It's funny, years ago, one of our players, this is like almost, it's 17 years ago. One of our, our, our girls there was primarily a post player and we would do, you know, 30, 40 minutes of shooting drills. And she would never win any of the competitions. I mean, she would just, she just didn't like it at all. And we had a really good shooting team that year. I think we hit 333s in 31 games. So that's like 11 made a game. And I think we shot 35, 36%, which is really good for a uh, high school team. And she didn't shoot a lot of threes, but she just hated doing the shooting drills, you know, and she wasn't great at it. Well, she goes off to four-year college to Princeton and who led their team in three-point percentage her freshman year? It was her. So she went from being the worst shooter on our team to the best shooter on, a, on her college team at the Division I level. So um, any college coach knows when they recruit one of our players, um, they're going to be able to shoot the ball. And it's slowly changing the culture of college basketball now that they're value shooters, that they value shooters. It's just, they're, they're going like, you know what? We need to get shooters. You know, it's like, <laughs> duh. You know, I'll just say to them, Hey, if you get, if, if you have great shooters, like we have great shooters, maybe you'll be playing for a, a conference championship or a, 
you know, a national championship like we play for state championships. And that's just an arrogant up the wazoo comment, but it's so true, you know, that you can, well, we're not really recruiting those because, you know, I don't think she's got the size to play division one. It's like, all right, do you think we can beat the teams we beat? With that player, she's playing. We had a girl guard in 2011. We had a five foot three girl guarding six three, Casey Swain, who already committed to UCLA. And my player, who happens to be an assistant coach, got the best of her that day. Got the best of her. And this is a tiny girl guarding somebody a foot tall. I mean, her nose was in her tummy, you know, and like that the whole time. And granted, she hit some shots, but on the other end of the court, that girl's got to guard her. You know, it's like, okay, you got to guard her. And look at how the Rockets are playing. Are you aware how the Rockets are the tallest guy is PJ Tucker, you know, six, six, you know, and they're doing well, you know, they're winning, they're winning games. They're hard to guard. Yeah. They, they, they give up so many points, you know, defensively with that, but they figured it out. They figured it out. Come get us on threes. You know, if you, and then they have a great finisher and driver and creator and James that uh, once he gets an open court, I mean, he's just sinister at the rim. And uh, that's, that's part of, you know, how basketball is played now. So it's really hard to convince these coaches about that particular thing. Yeah, definitely. I think you look at it too. I know kind of Nelly ball, something you heard a lot about. Sure. And, you know, a lot of six, 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 seven, six, eight wings, the warriors when they started out, with kind of their death lineup and what was that, the 2015 finals, putting in Iguodala, then the Hamptons five. And obviously Houston now, no more Clint Capella, but look at what they're doing right now. It's such a small lineup and it, it works. Yeah, as long as they're able to, because <clears throat> um, no, really, there's not really, I mean, who's a great low post scorer now in the NBA, you know, other than backing in and things like that. I mean, there's not really, I mean, the pros require a different skill set to play the post that you got to be able to switch off on guards. You got to be able to defend screen and roll and switch. Um, and uh, you got to be able to hit threes. I mean, look at Brooke Lopez. I mean, really, come on. He's, he, he shoots like 40% from three now. He didn't come into the league like this, you know, so he's developed that. And one of the things that I've worked with a couple of big guys that were, NBA prospects. Um, one is uh, Jock Landale. You ever heard of Jock Landale? Yes, St. Mary's. Yep. Okay, St. Mary's. He, uh, he came to see me at the end of his senior year and, you know, Randy won't let me shoot thrice. He won't let me shoot thrice. And I'm like, I'll get you shooting threes, no problem. And within, you know, 25 minutes, it's like he's got a new toy because nobody let him. Nobody let him. And it's like, that's, you know, I love Randy. He's a great guy. Randy was a college teammate of a kid on my first team I coached. So that's played at UC San Diego. And um, he wouldn't let him shoot threes. And go, well, you're a big guy. You can't shoot threes. Like, really? You know, you've got to really <clears throat> use that and make everybody able to shoot threes. So um, especially the big people, because it opens up the lane for your guards to be able to drive. And a lot of times, Coaches will put their, one of their tallest players on the floor because, oh, we always have to have a post player. 
you know, ah, oh, you know, and it's like, times are changing, you know, times are changing. The five best players play positionless basketball that everybody has the same skills outside. And if you can navigate defensively inside and make your rotations and take away the inside scoring, then why not play your best five offensive players outside? It's just difficult to, to negotiate with that. So that's one of our advantages. People will look at us through the years and say, oh, they're so small. But yeah, we're small, but we make concessions in how we guard and we work extensively on defensive principles. If the girls are playing on a string, they have a shared cognition of what we're doing as a team. Um, and we play, uh, play in a way that we're trying to minimize what we want as an offensive team. You know, we're not going to give you layups. We're not going to give you wide open threes. You can take all the mid-range shots you want when you're taller than us, but we're not going to let you just get the ball into your post and not have to kick it back out and, and make another decision with the ball. Um, where we get beat a lot when we play the really good teams on the offensive boards, um, the teams that are tall and long, that uh, crash the boards, they get the ball inside, and they're playing volleyball, and they're, they're, we're, we're kind of helpless in that regard a lot of the times. Um, but all about winning at the highest level is creating easy baskets. And a lot of times the teams will press steal layup, offensive boards, or they'll post up somebody that is their best interior player against a matchup. Like when we play the taller teams that'll have three six footers, like a Carondelet one year they had, uh, Bamberger, uh, uh, this other tallish girl, and this six, six, and whoever, I mean, my third tallest player was like five, five, you know? So whoever, it was almost like, where's the mouse? Okay, mouse, mouse, and how they're gonna post up our smallest player with their other big. And uh, that's where we run into a little bit of trouble, but we work really hard on double teams inside and try and minimize that to a certain extent. Um, and, uh, try and score more efficiently than the other team does. And uh, it's when we played last year in the uh, NorCal semifinal against Salesian, our, our points per possession was like 0.47. It's just ungodly. It was terrible. And we're tied 40 all with two and a half minutes to go. You know, so even though we were extremely inefficient, we still got the shots we wanted. We couldn't finish. Um, and our free throws were 18 out of 30. And about four of those were one and ones in the first half. And uh, that spells an L, you know. But it wasn't a matter of our style or they stopped us. We just, we got our shots. We couldn't hit them. And uh, a lot of times the prove it to me is our finishes at the rim. Um, from the standpoint of if we're not finishing at the rim, we put four other players outside. And we're not, we're not going to the offensive glass when somebody's driving. We're, we're, we're staying out. You know, because if they kick it out, then we're ready to hit our open three. So we rebound better when we shoot threes because that long shot creates a long miss. And we train our girls to have a reaction to filter in towards eyes on that ball hitting the rim and attacking that reactive rebound off the rim like a, like a shortstop attacks a ball hit or a tennis player attacks the ball being hit off the string. Same reaction, first step speed off that. And our goal is to get 10 offensive rebounds off our missed threes every game. And when I go through the analytics with people and the thought process, they, they go like, 
that kind of makes sense. You know, so if we're nine out of 30 from three, but of those 21 misses, we get 10 offensive boards. You pick 10 from 30, that's 20. That's, that's 20 possessions where we hit nine shots. That's 27 points in 20 possessions. That's like 1.3. It's pretty good. Um, our offensive rebounding on our missed finishes. Once, if we miss a finish, we're probably not getting that rebound. So teams kind of will play us that way. They'll force our, our, our players to basically play one-on-one. And, and this is why we spend 15 minutes probably a day on finishes, finishes with contact, finishes with defensive players, finishes with decisions. Um, so they, they're equipped with all the finishes. They have to figure out which one to do at the right time based on the scenario where people are. And uh, we go through a lot of detail to make them great. So it's not just, hey, they shoot a lot of threes. Wow, you know, they live by them and they die by them, you know? So when we lose a game, it's like we died, you know? Um, some of the reporters years ago would say that like, oh boy, live by the three, die by the three. It's like, how do you think we got to this game in the first place, dude? You know, it's like, really? You know, we're not going to feed our five foot five girl posting up against a six three girl. You know, that's not going to win. That's, sorry, that's not a win. And I learned this. It's funny, my coach boys, this is when the light bulb went on because it was like the nine, early 90s, and we had a bunch of good shooters, but I had a post player, and they're in the strong side. And when we would feed the post, he would do – I mean, Kevin McHale was big then. I mean, this guy had a great up and under and up and under, and he would fake and do this and do that, and he'd get a shot swatted by a 6'7 guy, you know, and the guy's a 6'1 post. And then when we got a lead, anytime we got a lead, they didn't have a shot clock then, we spread the floor and went four corners. You know, four corners is that offense with Phil Ford in North Carolina. You put three people in midcourt, one in the middle, and two sideline half court on each side. And then you put two people at the baseline three. And when they drove and basically pierced the balloon of defense where we got inside the three-point line, then our post player would slash and he would catch and finish. And it was like, wow. You know, yeah, we want somebody to finish the play that's created for them where they have a little bit of an advantage with movement. I mean, it just got so clogged in here. He's doing up and unders and people are coming down and stuff. But when you space the floor and you get guys an opportunity to finish like that, game's a lot easier. So that was my light bulb aha moment there as a coach like, oh, we don't have to have a high post and a low post, you know, our post doesn't have to be on the strong side. The post can be on the weak side in that rebounding spot on the other side. And when they help off of that, they'll get a layup, you know, and another funny story. I'm sorry to take your time with this, but there's lots of, lots of stuff. One of my uh, years ago at Pinewood, my post player is also a volleyball player. So she had to go play in some, AAU or, you know, National Olympic team or whatever they call it there. So she was gone one game and I put another girl in her spot where it's the weak side post and our point guard was fabulous that year that she'd be able to break somebody down and get into the paint and finish when there's no help. But when that other girl's girl helped, she'd pass the girl and she'd get a layup. And teams now take away that layup by helping from the weak side and 
making that adjustment, but they didn't back then in 2004 or three, four. And this girl's mother that scored 20 points in that game on finishes said, can you put my daughter in that spot more often? Because she had 20 points today. And it's like, yeah, 20 points that were created for her. You know, she didn't have to do anything but just catch and finish the play. And, uh, or if the girl missed the layup and the girl was helping over, she's there to be the cleanup person and get the offensive board and put it back and in. So those were my light bulb moments in terms of how we play. And it's gradually evolved into, you know, modern basketball now. And it's something that uh, we've refined and uh, something I'm, I'm really, really uh, proud of how we play and how teams are playing that way now. Yeah, and I'm sure there are tons of favorite wins and favorite moments that you have, but is there one or two moments that always stick out to you that you always kind of reflect on that was pretty cool? Um, there's so many of them. I, you know, people are gonna people are gonna say I know what he's gonna say. You know, he's, he's gonna say the win over St. Mary's of Stockton, 2016, number one team in the country. Our point guard went down with an ACL one month prior to that, and we go there and shock the world. We beat them 72-69. I think the final score was. We had 16 threes out of 29, and uh, they ref they their whole style is. Press steel layup. They get so many of their easy baskets with their quickness, how hard they play, and their length. But if you break their press, we're going to get an open three, you know. And fortunately, we hit 16 of them that game. Uh, we still didn't play a perfect game in terms of, I mean, far from it. We turned it over so many times. We gave over turnover points. So that has to be the one that, that I'm most proud of, uh, beating Mitty in that triple overtime game two years ago was fabulous. This, all the state championship wins, um, the two that stand out are 2010 and 2011, where we're playing teams that are taller, um, that uh, our team, our tallest player was 5'8", and that was Haley Eccles. And we're, we're beating these teams where they walk on the floor, you know, and it's a funny story, in 2011, we had gotten to the arena and the girls were getting assigned our team room. And I wanted to change into my game outfit, which I don't dress up anymore. Now I just wear sweats. That happens when you get old and crusty. You don't give a crap what people think of what you wear. But back then I really cared about what they thought I wore. So I, I had to go outside. I got them hooked up in the room and I'm walking out and the other team walks in. And I was like, uh, uh, you know, because most, most teams lie about their height, you know, they lie about their height. Oh, they got six, three, six, two, six, one. And then in introductions before the game, as you shake their hand, you go like, okay, she ain't six, one, she's five eleven. You know, you know, cause I'm six, two, or I used to be six, two and I'm six, one because I'm shrinking. Um, and when I walked past these girls, all their heights were legit. And it was like, uh, Oh, because I had already told the girls, hey, you're not going to be, that girl's not 6'3". And I walked up to her and said hi to the coach. I went head to head with that girl right there. And I'm like, hey, she's 6'3", all right. She's a little taller than I am. And when they came out and warmed up, it's the same feeling that you have when you watch, watch a team. And if you were a standard 
observer or the position you guys are in in your role in uh, in the media and uh, things like that, you'd watch the teams warm up and you'd go like, well, this isn't even going to be a game. And then two minutes into the game, you go like, oh, yeah, uh, now I know. So those games in 2010, 2011, we, we played our – we had to play our A game to win, and we did. You know, in, in the state championship games that we played recently in the Open, uh, teams had us well scouted, um, had great game plans going in, terrific coaches, terrific players, um, took away what we like to do and tried to minimize that damage and maximize – a style of play where they're going to let this do that. And uh, um, we didn't play our best. You know, we, we needed a B plus game to win and we got a C plus C minus where our shooters didn't shoot well. We didn't finish well. Um, we didn't do a good job defensively of aligning with our, our principles and our game plan going in, taking away what they like. And they, the other teams played better and deserved to win. But um, my, my point is, is that, those games in 2010 and 2011, we had to play our A game. We had to have our best players play well. We, our, our, our complementary players had to hit open shots, and they did. And our primary players played well as well. So anytime that – I mean, there's been so many wins like that with, with our team where you look at the differential in size and you go like, these kids don't have a chance and, until we play. And I have to be reminded of that. You know, I'll look at the other team and go like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? You know, and then in two minutes in the game or the first time out or the first, I just look at the girls and go like, are we going to win this game? Are we better? Are we having a hard time getting shots? No, we're going to win. We're going to win. And that confidence oozing is really, really important that I know that they have doubts about it. Everybody has doubts, but I want to make sure that, you know, their confidence um, rings true to that. Another side story there, we played um, as a high school team in some AAU tournaments in the summer 10 years ago. And the same thing happened these, these high level AAU teams. One of them is the Spokane Stars. And I think John, it's John Stockton's team, if I'm not, I'm not mistaken. It's his, he lives in Spokane area and things like that. Um, and they have a red team and a blue team and their, their red team is their best team and their blue team is their second team. And we beat their best team. Um, and highly, you know, big time AIU pro. And when I told the dad down here, whose, whose daughter, um, used to played with us and now was playing in college. And I said, well, we had a good summer. We were up in, uh, up in Oregon and we beat the Spokane stars. And he said, Oh, it must've been the blue team. I said, no, it was the red team. And he said, wait a minute. I looked online. That red team only lost twice. And I go like, yeah, I know. One of them's to us, you know, one of them's to us. And it's just the style of play skill wins, effort wins, cohesion wins. So that's one of the, the things that we're proud of, as I've said for the 35th time. Event, <laughs> <laughs> maybe go back in time a little bit. Sure. What do you remember about your first days when you were hired at Pinewood? What were the school's goals for you? What were your goals for the program? And then 
just going off that, how much have you seen the program just grow from what it was when you first took over to obviously being one of the top programs in the entire country where you're at now? The goal wasn't that. The goal was provide, you know, a great basketball program. My, my daughter uh, transferred in from Sacred Heart Prep to Pinewood her sophomore year. It was a great move for her academically as well as playing for me. She wouldn't say that. If I brought her over here right now, it's like, he's a pain in the neck. Um, uh, we had a great incoming freshman there named Lauren Smith-Hams, who eventually played at USC for three years there. Um, and we had other supporting players there. We just wanted to be a good basketball team. It's my first high school girls team. I coached junior high girls. I coached my daughter's teams in junior high. And I coached the eighth grade team at Pinewood the year before that. And I just fell in love with the, with the female athlete. They want to get it. You know, they want to please you. Male athletes, they might want to get it, but it's not cool to tell the coach that you want to get it. You know, they don't want to be that. And it's male ego. It's, it's hormones. Uh, and that's what got me out of coaching boys. It really did. Because I, I got tired of being the bad guy. I mean, I didn't like that. I like to be a respected person of authority that wants the best for you. And I, I don't like dealing with all the, you know, it's almost like the, the exchange of knowledge with a female player. The, the door is wide open. Air is coming in. All right. With guys, it's kind of a screen door. I mean, there's a filter that they won't yet get through. And you kind of have to figure out a way to get them to get it. Now, with, with females that I coach, I have to figure out a way skillfully they can get it, to come up with different cue phrases, different feel phrases for them to understand a concept or a skill or, or, some, or a thought that we want to get. But most males that are good think they're great. And most girls that are great just think they're pretty good. So when you deal with that mindset, I like to build people up. I like to affect the way they believe in themselves. You know, I don't want to tell this guy that he sucks or you're not as good as you think you are. You know, you, it takes a little trick to that. And uh, I wasn't great at that. Um, when I work with males individually, I don't have that peer pressure of being cool. I mean, they're here to get better. And most of the time and 95% of the situations, the door is open. They want to learn. Um, so as far as the, I think it just took off from there. Our team was really good. We, we made it to the uh, CCS finals in division five. And then uh, in NorCal, we lost in the opening round. Following year, we got to the CCS finals again and lost, lost in the second round of uh, NorCal, I think. And then uh, the third year we made it to the NorCal finals and lost um, there. And then the year after we won the state in 1999. And then it became, a, you know, became something that I didn't think I was gonna coach a long time. Uh, I, I thought it was just gonna, but I just fell in love with my teams. I just, it was just coaching heaven, you know? Um, why would I go anywhere else? You know, so um, I get that asked a lot. Why, you ever think about coaching in college? It's like, I coach the greatest girls there. Are. This is pure coaching. 
It's coaching. It's what I'm good at. I'm not good at recruiting. I'm not good at selling. I'm not good at, you know, managing time and stuff like that. Um, that's a different skill set. You know, it's like the Peter principle in business. You know, we all work up to positions where we're incompetent of handling that. You know, I, you know, it's like assistant coach. You know what? I don't want to be an assistant coach, you know, um, unless this person really believed in me and let me have some say in this. But uh, I like control. You know, <laughs> I like control. I know what I'm doing and uh, I know what I do well and I know what I'm not good at. So that's that. That help you? I think, I think oh, that's an yeah. important life lesson too, honestly, to understand what you're good at and what you're not good at and understand what don't. And also be careful what you wish for. The grass isn't always greener, right? You found the perfect spot for yourself right there. You know what you're great at and you're not trying to overextend your boundaries or do something that you know that's just not kind of your style. No, I've been asked several times, what, did you ever think about coaching boys again? And then, yeah, but uh, why could I leave the greatest job ever for me, you know? So now it's like I'm at that point in time age-wise where it's like, eh, nah, not even close. But years ago, it was something that I thought of that uh, was uh, something that could have been a possibility, but everything in life is profit and cost. You know, what profit you get out of it and what, what is its cost. And I'm involved in this because the profit is high and the cost is minimal. When it starts to be like this, then it's gonna be that, you know? And, and that's true with anything you guys do as well. It's like relationships or jobs or schools or any decision you have to make, what are you getting out? And what are you putting in? If you're putting in more than you're getting out, you know, then you got to make a choice. Yeah, that's right. That's definitely true. That's a life lesson again, right there. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm affecting you guys right here. You are. This is, this is impacting my life in a big way. I, <laughs> I hope coach understands that. <laughs> so let's get into, you got to meet Daryl Morey and Sam Hinkie. Tell the audience kind of about those times and what you guys got to talk about. I didn't understand that question. Go ahead and repeat that. Oh, so tell the audience about the times that you met Daryl Morey and Sam Hinkie. Yeah, you, you've met some pretty big name guys. And I know, like we talked about, they've also known who you are beforehand. Yeah. Well, which I think um, says a lot about your coaching. I, Sam Hinkie moved out here um, to work at Stanford. And one of the guys that I work with, his son and daughter, knew him through business and things like that. And he would tout my team to Sam. And Sam knew that I worked individually with players. I worked with Jeremy Lin and Sam was the assistant GM to Daryl Morey when Jeremy was with the Rockets. So he knew kind of of me then, but then when he's out in the area, he emailed me to work with his son and said, you know, I'd really like to watch one of your practices. And it's like, whoa this must be nice. So he came and watched the practice and he was floored by the practice as far as the effort, the efficiency, the positivity on the floor, just who the girls were, just their skill set too. It's, it's really a great advertisement for our program when somebody comes in and asks to talk to your girls and tells them that's the best practice he's ever seen at any level. And 
work with his son, maintain contact with him. He would, he's come maybe three or four practices and will bring a client, uh, somebody that he's mentoring to come watch his practice. And uh, that was really great. And then I was at a Warrior game last year. It was the playoffs, second game. And uh, I was walking down on close to the floor and I was introduced to Daryl and he says, you're a legend, proceed yourself. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Not about me? He says, no, I know who you are. You know, I've heard about, I've heard about it through, through Jeremy and um, through uh, Sam as well. So um, it's something that, uh, um, that you're really, really proud of, like a painting that people like that, you know, it's like you go to a museum. I, I really look at it that I want my team to be viewed as something that's fine music, fine art, uh, great culinary uh, work as well. That there's excellence involved with that. Everybody admires excellence. And uh, that's part of the reason why uh, um, uh, it's fun to coach is because you want to put a product on the floor that uh, people like to watch. They enjoy watching your team. Now we've got a really fun question cooking for you here. Okay. Pull out the, pull out your coaching clipboard here. Okay. So you've got the Sacramento Kings roster this year. Okay. Down two points with three seconds left. Draw okay. up a play and who's getting this final shot. Okay. Here we go. All right. Uh, Darren Fox. We've got, um, uh, let's see now. We've got, uh, who's their post player there? We'll, we'll put Bogdanovich right there. We'll put Buddy Heald right there. We'll put another shooter on the floor there. And what Darren Fox is going to do is he's going to pass to this high post. This is horn set right here. There's going to be a double. There's going to be a double stagger on Let's see, we're right here, sorry. <laughs> okay, <laughs> sorry about that. I was showing you the other play right there. So <laughs> basically they feed this guy right here, all right? And we have a double stagger on the other side. So we have a shooter coming up from here. We have two people setting a screen there. We have a good driver right there. And we have a shooter in the corner. So we distort the floor by creating a gap for this person to drive this way because there's not going to be any help so that person attacks the rim if there's help kicks it out for the three if there's no help they finish on the rim we tie it and send it to overtime a counter to that is that this person coming up from the screen will curl off the last screen and this person that set the first screen here will set a flare screen for that person popping out so it all depends on how much time you have left on the clock. You know, you want to run that to where the shot you take, you can follow it and get a putback. Uh, something that was the mistake of the Brooklyn Nets a week and a half ago. Karis LeVert took a fadeaway two, down two, and uh, uh, could have actually down one. He could have gone to the basket. But anyway, this is, this is one of our favorite sets that if you have a good driver there, that can get by, then you make the defense think that, oh, they're, you got a shooter coming up from a double stagger. They really got to get that three. No, we're not going to use that. We're going to drive. And then the counter to that is that person curls off the screen 
and then we set a flare for the second screener. Um, that's one of the things that you want to make sure that every set you run, end of game, I mean, it depends on what you need. You need a three, you need a two. Um, are you on the road or are you at home? I mean, in the pro level and stuff. Most, most of the accepted truth is that, okay, on the road, we're going for the win. At home, we'll tie or go for the win. But you want it to be a good shot. N nothing is, is better than a high percentage shot at the rim. I'll take the tie any day, any day of the week. The other set is a 1-4. And you basically pass to this person at the wing. This person comes over and sets a screen. And she drives away from the screen. And the only person that can help are these people here on this side of the floor. And if there's, that's a long way to come to help as well. And she can finish at the rim. Now, if her driving lane is closed, the person that set the first screen now will set a flare screen for De'Aaron Fox right there for a catch and shoot three. So we make it seem like <clears throat> we're going to get an open drive or we're going to run pick and roll. We reject it, drive to the basket, get that screen, curl around it, have an open shot. So we have a lot of options to get from there. This is a play we ran against Mitty down two um, in the NorCal final in regulation. Score was 50-48. And uh, we, we didn't run it a lot. When we save it a lot for games at the end of game situations, and we got an open finish at the rim because their whole game plan was not to help on any threes, which is probably smart, very smart on how to do it or how to help selectively against, uh, against maybe some of our players that aren't great shooters. But she had an open lane and finished the play, tied it up, went into overtime, went into overtime, went into another overtime, and eventually we were fortunate to win. Well, that was informative for sure. I was definitely cool to see, you know, someone draw up a play, you know, down a couple points and whatnot. The first play reminds me of Kawhi Leonard when he drove uh, with nine seconds left against the Mavs on Sunday. And he had the wide open, or he had an open layup, and then he decided to kick it out to uh, Morris in the corner and hit the three to take the lead before Luca hit his game winner, of course. Right. But that play kind of reminds me of that where you get the, the driver in, but also if he helps – come kick it out to, to the wide open. You got to choose your poison on that. That's, that's part of it. And we want a lot of our plays that we run. And this is, this is not something I draw up. You know, that's the thing that's kind of the most overrated thing. Did you see that play that Steve Kerr designed on his out-of-timeout? He's absolutely brilliant with that. Do you think he pulls it out of his butthole or something like that? You know, they practice these all the time. He's, he's going to go like, hmm what play am I going to run now? Mm, okay, it's, I have about 25 sideline out-of-bounds plays in my memory bank, you know? Come on. They practice them. They have, you know, their playlist of sideline out-of-bounds, what, what the clock is. They have a lot of great plays, but he doesn't draw them up like, like that at all. It doesn't happen. But that's the impression people get. Like, God, he's brilliant. It's like, no. First of all, he didn't come up with that play on his own. Two, um, he probably stole it from somebody, which we all do. You know, I, I love to make up plays and things like that. But um, 
it's not something they drop. It's all planned. I mean, it's all planned. It's all in how you script it out and how you set it up with stuff that you, you ran uh, previously in the game. And matchups as well is that you want to, we'll run that play for girls that have a matchup advantage. Like if we see somebody on the, the, the other team, that's not a very good defensive player and that possession that they're guarding somebody that we feel that can drive, well, we'll run some set plays to where they will, it's not an ISO per se, there's movement involved, but we, we basically flush the area of out of any help responsibilities at all. And that was the first play we ran. There's nobody who can help except the person guarding the shooter in the corner. If they, they help off the shooter in the corner, well, we're going to get our open three or we're going to get a finish at the rim. So all those are, are scripted and uh, utilized when we have a matchup advantage. Um, similar to when somebody wants to post up somebody, you know, that, okay, we got a, we got a tall player on a smaller player. We're going to run a play that posts that person up. Well, we look for matchup advantages where we look for those tall players to drive by without help. So it's all, it's all trying to get an easy shot, an efficient shot for your team. And another fun question we've got. Okay. For you. I mean, it's I love fun. Not really, not really pertaining to basketball. What's your favorite ever home cooked meal? Well, I'm a Thanksgiving guy. Turkey, mashed potatoes, stuffing, green beans, uh, gravy. And uh, that's my favorite dinner right there. Anything with mashed potatoes and turkey or mashed potatoes and chicken. Right. That's yeah, it. That's I mean, perfect. wrong with that. Can, can I make a request right now? Uh, <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting the thumbs down from, from that. So no, I guess not happening, not happening today. Up, not yeah, happening. Thanksgiving is coming up, though. Only a couple months left until that. So. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good thing. <laughs> that's a good thing. And then the other fun question we got for you, your favorite athlete growing up? Uh, Jerry West, John Havlicek, you know, that, that, that ages me. Um, I, I love John Havlicek. Uh, I patterned my shot after Hondo. Like that growing up from the standpoint of, I mean, that's a funny thing with uh, kids now is that uh, they, I, I'm big on mimicry. As, as a means of, that's how I learned. You know, a gymnast, an ice skater, a dancer, they are great learners in terms of seeing how something is done and taking feedback and putting it into their body and how it moves. And I teach a lot like that in terms of teaching skills of the game, in terms of breaking things down. But imitation is, is so important uh, in terms of tennis or in golf. You know, you watch a golf tournament like if you watched uh, Dustin Johnson yesterday, it's like, okay, you watch his swing, you go out to the range, you're going like, I'm hitting the best I've ever hit in my life. Well, why is that? Well, you just want perfection for four hours. And when you go out there, you can imitate that. Whether you watch, you know, a tennis player, I used to love to watch, uh, I still love watching Federer play, you know, in terms of the beauty of his, his strokes and the way he moves so effortlessly and fluidly with his footwork. You go out there and play and it's like, I'm Roger. I'm Roger. Roger. Come on, Roger. Um, that's what they yell all the time at Wimbledon when he's screwing up. <laughs> Come on, Roger. And you spell Roger. R-A-J-A. -A. You know, it's not Roger. It's Roger. Anyway, um, power of imitation. Imitating people that do things in great form. And my whole thing in the playoffs is I have – 
a group text, I get ignored, or I'll send them moves that Ja Morant, I'll send them Luca, I'll send them uh, Eric Gordon, I'll send them um, moves that we work on every single day, finishes that we work on every single day, um, and get their reaction, get, get, get them to see that the stuff we're working on is basically that's right there. That's why you should practice that and make it part of your game. And uh, that's, that's the beauty of, of teaching is giving them a picture of how it's done in perfect form. And, but kids now don't understand it. The boys that I've worked with in the past, I'll just, when I work with them at first individually, I'll ask them, well, who's your favorite player? You know, and well, Kevin Durant. I said, really? Okay. All right. Can I see your Kevin Durant imitation of his shot? And by and large, that don't look like Kevin Durant. I mean, looks like Kevin Federline for crying out loud. I mean, you should be able to imitate your favorite player. And my favorite player was John Havlicek and Jerry West. And I wanted to become them. Uh, that's part of, you know, being a young kid that uh, idolized their athletes, you know. And it's funny that you asked me that question. In recent years, a lot of our plays are named after my favorite athletes. Um, we have a group of plays called Tony after Tony Parker. We have a group of plays, Tommy Boy after Tom Brady. Um, we got Steph. We got all the, when the Warriors were great, we had different plays that we ran. And instead of just naming them a state or a city or, you know, something like, or a color, uh, we named them after uh, players. So we're running green, we're running Livingston, we're running Clay, we're running Steph, we're running green. We ran a Bogut play that we ran that was uh, a bounce pass between the legs. You know, I, you, ever, you ever see him make that pass where yep. he catches the ball and somebody cuts behind him and he catches and bounces it between your legs? We had that play um, and it worked twice. And the reaction that uh, you get from your kids are like, it just goes nuts because it's just a backdoor play. You can make a simple pass on a backdoor like that, but no, we passed it between our legs and it was kind of, it was kind of fun. So. And then going off that, if there's one NBA player, whose form would you pick to imitate uh, their shot form? Is it Steph, Clay, Kevin Durant, Damian Lillard? Who am I going to say, Chris? Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to go with, we're, we're going to go with, it's going to be a warrior. It's going to be, you know, I'm going to go Clay Thompson. I have this on my phone. <laughs> it's so smooth. Oh yeah. yeah. I love that form. <laughs> I, I mean, I love steps too, but plays just seem so much more technically perfect. The thing is, the concepts about that are, where's the ball when he jumps to shoot it? Loads it at his waist. Coaches say, don't dip the ball, you're going to hell. Well, no, you, everybody, every shooter dips the ball that are great shooters. I mean, I've had an argument with a guy who's a shooting coach. Yeah, Clay dips in practice, but in games, he speeds up his release and doesn't dip. And it's like... I've watched every Warrior game for the last five years. I can count on one 
two hands how many times he's just done that. And I guarantee you he's missed most of them because he didn't load the ball at his waist. You're jumping quick. You're flowing forward after you shoot. And his arc is always the same every single shot. That's why it's great. And the reason it looks so rhythmical is because the rhythm of the skill of jumping involved. What's the difference when you, when you watch volleyball? Little blockers start with their hands up and they jump and they get like two inches off the ground. The spikers take a run and a jump and their hands are behind them and they lift into their shot. They're going to jump higher. Well, where are your arms located when you're holding onto a ball? You can't hold them behind your back, but you can hold them at your waist. And that's the key element with that shot that we have to train some kids to be able to do that because it should be natural. They should do it naturally. And uh, um, sometimes it gets trained out of them. Jump quick, land your feet in front, have the ball at your waist when you jump, keep your art mid forties. You can develop a good shooter. Well, that was informative. I think- There you that, go, educate, educate. Yeah, I think, I think you got just- some life lessons it. out of it. Yeah, I think you educated the entire world on how to there play basketball. Go. Literally, I, I've been telling Greg, since the last time we talked, every time I watch a basketball game, I'm talking about your concepts. I'm like, why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you doing what Doc said? Come on, that's why it's not working. Well, look at Lillard when he shoots, you know, 45 feet out, you know, and you go like, wow, how can he shoot so far out? Well, it's the summation of levers working together. It's like, I don't know if you've ever watched, you know, a 10 or 11 year old softball pitcher that's tiny and she throws fricking gas. And you're wondering, how can that little girl throw so hard? Well, it's the summation of levers. Everything is working together. Arm extension, hip rotation, transfer of weight, everything is working together. I mean, how can that, that uh, Bryson DeChambeau hit the ball like 380 now? Well, he's, he's on steroids. No, um, <laughs> he's, uh, he's bulked himself up. He's got the best clubs. He creates great speed and plus, ergonomically he's perfect in terms of transferring weight these guys are not big guys it's not just equipment they've mastered the ability of rhythm in their swings to impart power and uh you can see it in, in pitchers i mean i my first exposure to that was i pitched in high school in baseball and i didn't throw that hard i tried to throw hard but i was trying too hard to throw hard and there was another pitcher that was 5'8", maybe 160 strong, that threw gas. I mean, gas. Well, his release point was up here. His hip rotation, his extension into there, he's really using his legs to impart power on the ball. He could throw 90 miles an hour in high school, and he was just a little guy. And I'm wondering, like, I'm 6'2", and I can't throw half as hard as that. It's perfect symmetry of your body in motion. And that's one of the things that intrigues me and has intrigued me, still intrigues me of doing everything better, doing everything better. There's a way to do things. And the best way to do things is something that, you know, I'm always in search of is that get players to get things faster. And uh, as part of, you know, if I demand my, my girls get better every single day, what am I doing, you know? I mean, I'm on a podcast with these two guys for crying out loud. I should be watching film. No, so, uh, I, yeah, yeah. So um, that's one of the things during the, the pandemic and during all this, you know, what have you been spending your time doing? Well, I've been watching lots 
of coaching tutorials, lots of clinics, lots of virtual clinics doing a lot as well, but uh, trying to get better, trying to do things better. And uh, I can't wait for a season to show that. Definitely. I think, you know, if people get mad at you for not watching film, we can just show them the clips of you drawing up plays right here with flare screens, cuts. I, I think, I think we've got you covered there. You've got, I think two people that could really defend you on that in case someone kind of attacks your work ethic there. Of course, I don't know why someone would, but regardless coach, this is, no, I, I, I watch film, but not, uh, you know, when we, when we approach a game, you can see all teams have, kind of similar situations. We'll have a similar game plan and you can learn on the fly. I'd rather players get better in practice and make better players than spend, you know, an hour going over prep of what we've got to do to beat this team in December. You know, it's like, no, uh, the whole goal is what we are doing to get better. Our defensive principles will take away from things that that other team wants to do. And our preparation is such to where, we've played every type of team there is. And uh, the girls know, as a matter of fact, I quizzed one of my players, how we're gonna play this certain team next year um, with this particular player on the team. And she spit it out right away. She just, yeah, well, we're, we're, we're gonna help, we're gonna help, we're gonna help offer. And then when she catches the ball, we're gonna force her to, force her to, to drive. She's not a great shooter. It's like, great. All right, we're gonna help on her drive? No, not really. He's like, okay. What are we going to do when we guard that girl? That girl's a shooter. How good a driver? She's not a very good driver. Okay, we're going to force her to drive. You're going to make the non-decision makers decision makers, and you're not going to let the decision makers have an open driving lane. And uh, we're in trouble when we play us because uh, we want to develop all those decision makers and drivers and shooters. So um, it helps to have skills <clears throat> at the offensive end that we have to defend defensively. That sounds a lot like John Wooden a lot too. I'm not sure how many of John Wooden's books you've read, but he's also talking sure. about really honing in on what you guys are great at as a team, right? Sure, you can be concerned about the opponent, but what's that going to do you if you're not improving your skills and your team and your fundamentals and being great at what you're good at? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, be quick, don't be in a hurry. You know, all those wooden things, you yep. know. And, yeah, I got a bunch of wooden books over there. He's the master of uh coaching um, oh yeah in terms of that in terms of what he says you know don't never mistake activity for achievement you know that's another one just because you're doing something doesn't mean you're you're on the thing so that's part of our practice you know just we just don't okay today what are we going to do today okay we're we're going to work on zone offense today you know or we're gonna we're gonna do the weave and do layups and do a shooting drill, a team shooting drill where we have one ball and you're gonna get a shot every minute. And uh, you know, everything has to have a function and efficiency to it. So it's based on players getting better. You want them to improve. That's the goal of, of every coach or should be every coach is to make them better, better players. Awesome. Yeah, Coach, that's all we got for you today on this podcast. We thank you so much for coming on, talking mm -hmm. basketball for an hour and a half. was, I think, I think that was a pleasure for both of us. And then so look forward to continue watching you guys play at Pinewood. Obviously, so much success. We're excited to watch what Pinewood continues to do. And we hope you, your family, all of Pinewood's doing okay. I know 2020 has been tough with the fires. First, first day of school today. Oh, who's, wow. Who's Zooming who? You know, who's <laughs> Zooming who, baby? Who's Zooming who? Uh, 
And you know, when I say that to the girls, who's Zoom and who, they go like, what is that? I said, that's an Aretha Franklin song 25 years ago, you know, you know, put it on YouTube, you know, so no idea. So yeah, we anyway. thank you so much for coming on. You bet. Right. Next episode, we'll have Derek Stevens from the Iron Sharpens Iron Football Academy coming on. Until then, subscribe to our YouTube page. Follow us on social media at West Coast Preps underscore and follow our work at westcoastpreps.com.